0: This podcast, we're reading Genesis chapter 1 through 3, and we're also reading from the New King James Version. And incidentally, these notes are abbreviated, and so if you'd like to see the notes that are fuller, that feature the King James Version of the Bible, then you can click on the link on this page on BibleTalk.org, and it will, of course, take you there. Let's look at the background on the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. Traditionally, it's been thought that Moses wrote these books. However, we aren't actually told in the scripture per se. Although Jesus does refer to Genesis as the book of Moses in Mark chapter 12, verse 26, I think you'd agree that Jesus would know that. Since we find the death of Moses recorded in some detail in Deuteronomy chapter 34, it's likely that he was assisted by his right-hand man Joshua in the writing of these five books. Further evidence of Joshua's participation in this effort is seen in the name of the Canaan city Ai. The Hebrew word Ai actually means heap of ruins, and that's what Ai became in Joshua chapter 8, verse 28. That's, of course, after Joshua and the Israelites were finished with it. In the first mention of Ai in Genesis chapter 12, verse 8, it's preceded by the Hebrew definite article, the Hebrew hate, which is the equivalent of our H in English, and therefore would be transliterated Hei. That would make the name The Heap of Ruins, because the definite article H there is the equivalent of our The. So I think it's fairly obvious that Moses was assisted by his protege and successor Joshua in writing these five books. So let's look at how it all started in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, there are some credible Bible teachers who teach what's called the gap theory. That's that a previous creation existed between verses 1 and 2, and that that creation was destroyed by God for their wickedness. Therefore, along with that, it's taught that verse 2 here records a second creation, the one in which we now reside. I don't find that to be a credible theory based upon what we're told in Scripture. And you combine that with the structure of the Hebrew text it just doesn't seem credible to me. If you'd like to pursue this discussion further, then click on the link that's on the written notes of the Bibletrack.org for today's reading. Let's look at the six days of creation beginning with chapter 1, verse 3. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters." Thus God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons, and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded, according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature, according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields sea, which is on the face of all the earth. And every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. You'll notice that days are rendered in this passage with the phrase, the evening and the morning. Thus, tomorrow's Jewish day is rendered to begin at sundown today. Even today, Jews observe the Sabbath day beginning at sundown on Friday. This rendering of a day is consistent throughout the Old Testament. Verse 26 causes a question to arise concerning the meaning of let us make man in our image. Could this be a reference to the Godhead? Well, many scholars think so, and I'm comfortable with that view as well. However, that interpretation is not universally held among fundamental Bible scholars. If you'd like more information on the Godhead, then see the notes on Colossians chapter 1, verses 15-24. to 24. Some scholars through the centuries have held that God was referring to angels when He uses the plural reference there. That would presuppose that angels had a human form, the template of which God used to create man. Now, it's true that when angels later show up on the scene in both the Old and New Testaments, they do have the form of a man there. As a matter of fact, the angel of the Lord is seen numerous times in the Old Testament, and there appears as a man as well. Now, I'm convinced that those manifestations were pre-incarnate manifestations of Jesus himself. Therefore, I'm comfortable with the notion that the form of man was patterned after that of the angels, and, of course, Jesus himself. Now, perhaps this is a good time to introduce the usage of the word God in the Old Testament. The Jews have a concept in Hebrew that they call the majestic plural. You see, the Hebrew suffix, "em," well, that's the equivalent of our S in English. It's the way that you make a singular masculine word plural. For example, Sus in Hebrew is the word for horse, but Susim is plural, making it horses. Now, as is the case in English, uh, verbs in Hebrew observe uh, subject-verb agreement as well. So, they have uh, verbs that are singular in form and plural in form. Now, when we look at the accompanying verb in its plural form, we see that the Hebrew word Elohim is followed with a singular verb. As you can see, it has the plural ending, Elohim does, but when it's used with a singular form verb, we understand the word to be a singular reference to the one true God. Whereas when there is no definite article and there is a plural verb accompanying it, then we understand it to be God's, not necessarily the one true God. That's what the Hebrew linguist called the majestic plural. Therefore, where Christians may see the Godhead in the plural usage of Elohim to denote the God of the universe, Jewish scholars, well, they don't see it that way. If you'd like to see the days of creation, by the way, in this passage broken down into chart form, then on the written notes of BibleTrack.org that you may be following along with right now, click on that link and it'll take you to a chart. Now, how about a Bible trivia question? Here it is. On what day was Eve created? Well, hint, the answer is in verses 27 and 28. Now, here's another interesting point from this passage. It would appear that all creatures began as vegetarians according to verses 29 and 30. It was not to remain that way, though. The precedent of eating meat is established by God after the Noah Flood In Genesis chapter 9 verses 1 through 3. Now we see that uh, keeping the Sabbath day predates the law of Moses as we begin reading with chapter 2 verse 1. Verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. These verses are significant throughout Jewish history. God rested on the Sabbath or the seventh day. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew word for rested there is Shabbat. Actually translated in the Old Testament as Sabbath when used as a noun instead of a verb. Verse 3 says that God sanctified that day. He literally set it apart as a special holy day. By the way, that's Saturday, not Sunday. It should be noted that Sabbath-keeping was not first introduced by Moses. It dates all the way back to creation. So what was life in Eden? What was it like? Well, let's begin reading with chapter 2, verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was on the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth, and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted the garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon, is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good." Bedelium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hedekel. It is the one which goes around toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now our first occurrence of Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, shows up here in verse 4. Up to this point, God, the Hebrew equivalent Elohim, has been used alone. But here Elohim is combined with the Hebrew word Yahweh, sometimes referred to as Jehovah, and translated Lord, all capitals, as it is elsewhere in the Old Testament. If you'd like more information on the names of God, then take a look at the notes on Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. In verses 10 through 14 here, we're given a couple of hints about the location of the Garden of Eden close to the intersection, by the way, of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Based upon these verses, I've included a map on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today to show you a speculation which is as good as anybody's. The map that I've included here places it underwater in the Persian Gulf. Verses 5 and 6 indicate that there was no rain in the garden, but a mist kept everything watered. As a matter of fact, there was no rain until the Noah flood in Genesis chapter 7. Now we see in verse 7 here, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now here's a distinction between man and animals. Moreover, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we see that man was created in God's own image. Verse 9 tells us that there were two trees in the midst of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The instructions from verses 16 and 17 are very clear. Eat from all the trees except do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam had just one commandment. I mean, just one commandment. And he broke it. Adam was lonely, though. We see in verses 18 to 25. Verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So here in this passage, God created Eve from Adam's rib. The oft-quoted marriage ceremony verse is found there in verse 24, which says, Therefore man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We often refer to marriage as leaving and cleaving. You'll notice that this special relationship between a husband and a wife being one flesh, well, it's unparalleled in Scripture, except for our relationship with God himself. Our relationship as Christians This one-flesh understanding of marriage and thus the result of sexual relations is referenced by Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, Mark chapter 10, verse 8 also, and by Paul again in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Now, I hate to do this, but let's put an end to an old urban legend. I've always been told that women had one more pair of ribs than men. I was further told that it was because Adam gave up a pair for the creation of Eve. I may have even quoted this as fact at some point in time myself. Well, as it turns out, male or female, everybody's got 12 pairs of ribs. Incidentally, it would appear that all of this took place on day six of creation. That conclusion is derived from the wording of Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, which says, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him male and female he created them. And in chapter 3 we have the entrance of that pesky satan. Chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made and he said to the woman hast God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent And a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. (laughs) Hey, Eve, are you talking to a snake? Well, Satan took the form of the serpent here, an animal described as the most cunning in the garden. All indications are that his form was nothing like what we see today. His current form was as a result of the curse in verse 14. Now look here. Eve only had one command from God, and that was that tree of knowledge restriction. But wait. When Satan challenges her to eat of that tree, Eve misquotes God's command to Adam regarding the tree. God had told Adam nothing about touching the tree, just eating from it. That was back in Genesis 2, verse 17. Now, maybe Adam thought it best to just tell Eve not to even touch it. Or maybe Eve was exaggerating God's command to make it seem ridiculous. Whatever the circumstances, Eve broke the only commandment God had given them. But wait, there's more. She also gave Adam to eat, and he partook also. Now, the Apostle Paul makes an interesting distinction here over in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, when he says, For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. In other words, Eve was deceived, but Adam... Nah, he just plain old disobeyed. There's a doctrine going around, it's been around for nearly a century, that's picking up some steam lately because of a contemporary television Bible teacher's promotion of it. That doctrine is that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not a piece of fruit at all. It's maintained that the fruit was simply a metaphor for sexual relations between a man and a woman for the purpose of pleasure. It's further taught that Though Cain and Abel were twins, Cain was the offspring of the serpent Satan, and Abel was the offspring of Adam. Now, there simply is no basis in Scripture for such a doctrine. We're told that it was fruit, and who am I to alter the passage to make it something else? The Old Testament is not shy of explicit accounts of sexual relations, so my point there is that if that had been the activity between Adam and Eve, something sexual, and the serpent... The scripture would have plainly told us so, don't you think? Genesis says it was fruit, and you know what? I believe it was fruit. Then we have the entrance of God, beginning in verse 7. He's got some pretty bad news. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and ye shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain ye shall bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband, and ye shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because ye have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil ye shall eat of it all the days of your life both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field in the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand, and take also the tree of life, and eat, and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim to the east of the garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Well, now here's the problem. After they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they had a rush of realization. Yikes, we're naked. They heard God approaching and hid themselves from him in shame. You know, like you can really hide from God. Why'd you do it, Adam? Well, here's Adam's rather amusing reply in verse 12. Then the man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Well, that's true, all right. So, why did you eat, Eve? She replied, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So, here we have it. Eve was deceived. Adam, well, he just blatantly disobeyed. And then tried to pass the buck to Eve as an excuse. Well, now let's look at the resulting curses. First of all, the serpent won't be such an attractive animal anymore. Well, that certainly became true. Number two, An animosity will exist between the serpent and the woman. Thirdly, an animosity will exist between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of Eve. Fourth, childbirth will be hard from now on. Fifth, Adam shall rule over Eve. In other words, men shall rule over women. Number six, Adam and all men will toil very hard for food. And then lastly, number seven, Just forget about physical immortality for man. Now, many scholars see a promise of the Messiah in verse 15. If we look beyond the actual animal that Satan used, meaning the serpent, and see this as a struggle between evil, Satan, and mankind, the offspring of the woman, then certainly we know that Christ does overcome Satan in Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 10. But I'm just not sure that's what's implied here. Well, I certainly have no problems, though, with those who teach that verse 15 is a prophecy of the Messiah. Now, here we find the first occasion of animal sacrifice on behalf of man. Well, of course, that's assuming that the animals in verse 21 gave up their skin somewhat begrudgingly. At this point, the only thing left is to drive Adam and Eve from the garden and block their return. Verse 22 is a curious verse there. It's implied that had Adam and Eve been able to continue to eat of the fruit from the tree of life, they would have been immortal. The major consequence of the sin Adam and Eve committed is that all mankind, from that day until this, is born with an Adamic nature, also known as a carnal nature or carnal flesh, in other words, a propensity to disobey God and a destiny to physically die. Now, the Apostle Paul makes reference to the sin nature in Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in two different verses there, and 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's because of this Adamic sin nature that mankind requires a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. Physical immortality appears to be the original plan in the garden. Spiritual immortality is the plan of God, now, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ.